Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew, and uh, we're going to hear from God now as we read his word together. Uh, this morning, we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 14, and so I'll give you a couple minutes to find that in the Bibles. Uh, so this morning, um, Danny's going to be taking us through all of 2 Samuel chapter 14, um, but I'm just going to start by reading the first 20 verses. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Decoah and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Decoah went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said, help me, O king. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I am indeed a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go home and I will issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Decoah said to him, my lord the king, let the blame rest on me and my father's family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he will not bother you again. She said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the anger, uh, the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son shall not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself for the king has not brought back his banished son, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. 
Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. And now I have come to say this to my Lord, the King, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, if I speak to the king, perhaps he will do what his servant asks. Perhaps the Lord will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from the inheritance God gave us. And now your servant says, may the word of my Lord the king bring me rest. For my Lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, Do not keep from me the answer to what I am going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, No one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for that reading. Thank you, Joe, for your uh, introduction. Let me add my welcome to Joe's. It's great to see you uh, this morning for this final week in 2 Samuel, and uh, I encourage you to have that uh, passage open in front of you, and uh, you'll find an outline on the inside of the sheet. Well, a few years ago, Uh, The New Year's edition of Time magazine, uh, which is one of those magazines I I never actually read, but you just sort of see the front cover of, um, it had a a very memorable image uh, on the front cover um, that actually takes us close to the message of these books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. There was a striking photograph of planet Earth taken from outer space, And on either side of that, if you can picture it, were some of the great world leaders of the time. So a few years ago, it was uh, Tony Blair, I think, on one side, and George Bush on the other, and people like that. And then stuck right across the middle of the globe was a sticking plaster. And the headline, who will save the world? Who will save the world? And I think the books of 1 and 2 Samuel present us with that very question, who will save the world? the world. 1 Samuel opens, you may remember, with a leadership crisis in the nation of Israel, the nation that had been chosen by God as a kind of a model for his plans for the whole world. It comes at the end of a 200-year period of chaos and anarchy and upheaval that is recorded in the book of Judges, uh, which ends with the summary sentence, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. And so into that chaotic situation, at the end of the book of Judges, the books of Samuel record the beginning of kingship, the kingship in Israel. And they focus on two kings. Firstly, Saul, which goes from 1 Samuel 9 to the 
end of the first book. And then David, whose story overlaps with Saul, uh, beginning in 1 Samuel 16 and then continuing right to the end of 2 Samuel. So if Time magazine had been published 3,000 years ago in Israel, it may well have run the same cover, picture of a world sticking plaster, but instead of Bush and Blair, you would have David and Saul and the headline, Who Will Save the World? Well, if you've been following the story so far, you'll know that for a lot of the time, the answer, as Joe reminded us earlier, does look very much like David. From 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 2 Samuel 10, it is a success story. Everything goes right for David. He is victorious in battle. He is godly. He's wise. He's just. He's kingly. By chapter 10, David is enthroned in Jerusalem. All his enemies are defeated around him. And you're beginning to see what looks like the kingdom of God. God's people living in God's place under his rule and blessing under the leadership of God's king. It's a wonderful time of peace and rest and fulfillment. We get a little glimpse of that Bible word shalom, a little glimpse of the Garden of Eden a little taste of what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God. But as soon as we reach that climax in chapter 10 and think, yes, this is what it means to have God's leader rule our world, disaster strikes. And it's a disaster that is worse than any Philistine ever inflicted on Israel. It is a disaster that comes from David's own sinful heart, David commits adultery to cover it up. He has a woman's husband murdered, marries the widow, claims the son. The son dies. Another son rapes a sister. Another son murders the brother. And this avalanche of sin begins, and the kingdom unravels before our eyes. And so before we know it, we are back to the chaos, the disorder, the anarchy of the book of Judges, as if no progress has been made. And David's life is a plate of spaghetti. It's scrambled, it's a mess, it's an intractable, unfathomable mess. And the kingdom is a mess too. And so, if David's life is a mess, then how can he be the one to sort out our mess? If David's kingdom, which is supposed to be the kingdom of God, is so broken, then how can this be a model for what God is doing with the world? How can David save the world? Well, as I hope we've seen more and more clearly as the weeks have gone on, the answer to that question, who will save the world, comes much, much later. It comes many years after David, in David's greatest son, whose very name, you may remember, as the angel tells Joseph in Matthew 1, means God saves Jesus Christ. And the big surprise is that he does it through the cross. David creates a kingdom through strength, through might. Jesus creates this kingdom through dying. He saves the world, not through wisdom or power, but through what Paul calls the weakness and foolishness of the cross. As growth groups have been seeing in, one, uh, in Colossians 1.20, it is by his blood shed on the cross that God reconciles all things to himself and fixes the world. 
unscrambles the mess, untangles the spaghetti. He does it, great surprise, by his blood. That's how he puts everything in order. Who will save the world? Christ crucified. So, if by chapter 13 we've already seen the answer, what more is there to say? Why does the story continue? What more have we to learn? Haven't we learned the main lesson that the book has to teach us? Well, we have, but the story continues at least for a little while longer because God knows that we won't actually believe the answer. Not really. Not when it comes to the crunch. See, sometimes the problems of the world just seem so enormous to us and so pressing, so immediate, that they, they seem to require a more practical solution, a more powerful solution. Sometimes the mess of our own lives looks so deep that Jesus' solution actually does seem weak and foolish to us. And in the midst of the intractable mess of life and the brokenness of our world, there are sometimes solutions that look more impressive, that look more attractive, so that actually, even for the Christian believer, the gospel message seems weak and foolish. And in fact, perhaps the gospel message needs adjusting. So instead of the forgiveness of sins, maybe we should talk more about the meaning and purpose of life. Instead of holiness, maybe we should talk more about environmental responsibility. Instead of divine judgment, maybe we should talk more about social justice. Instead of God, maybe we should talk more about spirituality. Instead of proclamation, maybe we should talk more about rational persuasion. Instead of speaking the word to each other, maybe we should talk more about therapy. See, we say, don't we, that we believe the gospel. We talk about the gospel and we have sung about the gospel. But I want to ask this morning, when it comes to the crunch, to the hardest parts of life, and to the real brokenness of our world, do you actually believe the gospel? Because I don't know about you, but I find it all too easy to look for something more solid, more practical, more impressive, more attractive than the message of Christ crucified. I find it all too easy to believe that there is another solution to the disorder and mess of our lives. And if only we did have a great human leader, great technological, clever schemes, a great movement of social justice or technology or science, or even if we could just teach people to be nice to each other. Well, if we think like that, we're engaged in the greatest foolishness imaginable. And this is the lesson of 2 Samuel 14. The chapter is long and complex. Andy's just read half of it. We're going to read the other half a little bit later. But its basic outline is straightforward. And I've put it there on the sheet for you to see. The three main players, Joab, David, and the king's oldest surviving son, Absalom, basically each take a turn to sort out the mess of the kingdom their way. But instead of fixing the mess, they make matters worse. 
So we have a scheming general and his clever plan, first of all, in 1 to 20. Look again at verse 1. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Verse 1 introduces us to the three main players of the narrative that follows and the problem that they're trying to solve. First, there is Joab, David's loyal and determined military commander, who happens to be his nephew. Then there is David himself, who is referred throughout the chapter, never by name, but always as the king. And thirdly, there is Absalom, David's oldest remaining son, the crown prince. He's been in exile for three years since he killed his half-brother Amnon in revenge for raping Absalom's sister Tamar. So there are the three main characters in the passage, and they're trying to solve a problem. But what is the problem they're trying to solve? Well, the translation in front of us suggests that David longs to have Absalom back in the kingdom. This translation is an attempt to sort out the uncertainty that we saw last week about David's feelings for his sons in chapter 13. But there is no longed for in the Hebrew. There's just a little word that is better translated here as against. David is certainly thinking about that son in exile who took it into his own hands to bring justice and kill the heir of the kingdom. But I don't think David is longing for Absalom He does not, as we'll see later, actually want to see him at all. And this is why Joab has a problem. See, Joab might be a soldier, but he's a politician by nature. He can see the problem with having David at odds with his successor, and that successor languishing in exile in another kingdom. He can see that there is a leadership crisis waiting to happen, a hunch that will be proved right in the next chapter. And so what we need to know to understand what follows is that Joab's single-minded aim is to bring Absalom back from exile and to reunite him with David. That's his aim. That is what Joab thinks will protect and save the kingdom and actually fix the mess that the kingdom is in. But it's not going to be easy. Such are David's feelings about Absalom that Joab has to go about his plan in a devious and dramatic way. So verse 2. Joab sends someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes, don't use any cosmetic lotions, act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead, then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab effectively is employing a kind of an an actress, an actor, to kind of bring this story to David, a story that matches his own story. Joab's plan is to bring these words into David's life to change his mind about Absalom so that David will bring Absalom back. And then what follows is the longest and most intricate conversation anywhere in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It begins with a woman just going up to the king, verse 4, and asking for help. Help me, O king. The king asked her, what's troubling you? And then in 5 to 7, she presents her case. And what we need to notice is that the case she presents parallels David's own situation in some ways. So she's a widow with only two sons. Well, David has two sons. Somehow a dispute arose between the two sons. Well, that's Absalom and Amnon. And after a fight, one killed the other. But this killing has led to the extended family rising up against her, demanding retribution for killing the remaining son, 
But what they really want is to get their hands on the inheritance. And the problem for the woman, verse 7, is that this will leave her destitute with neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. Now, can you see that the woman is not really making a kind of a legal case? She's actually just doing what people do when they approach the king. She is asking for compassion. She speaks with the voice of a mother in distress about her son and about her own situation. Yes, one of her sons has killed the other one, and under the law, she should be, he should be punished, but she's still her son. He, she is still his mother. He is all she has, and she wants him back. In other words, she is beginning to tug at David's emotions. But of course, we know what David doesn't know, that this is a pretense. The woman's story has been carefully constructed to parallel David's own story. And you might remember this is exactly what Nathan the prophet did back in chapter 12 with that story about the lamb. Well, the king seems taken in and he promises to sort it out. Leave it to me, he says, verse 8. I'll see to it. What more could she want? But she's not yet done with David. In verses 9 and 10, she presses the king for a solemn promise about that situation. She keeps on ratcheting up the stakes until at last she extracts from the king this absolute rock-solid guarantee sworn on the very life of God that, verse 11, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Now, this is a very generous and wonderful promise, isn't it? If her son had been a real flesh-and-blood human being and not just a fictional character, this would be a great result for the woman of Tekoa. To have the protection of every hair of your son's head by the king of Israel, what a wonderful thing that would be. But of course, we know this is not real. She's made up this story. We know that this has something to do with Absalom. And when we get to meet Absalom shortly, we'll see how ironic all this talk about protecting the hairs of his head will turn out to be. Well, through a rather laborious process, the woman has now secured this solemn oath from David. He will protect the son. And it's time for the trap to spring shut. Verse 12, then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Do you remember in chapter 12, if you were here, when Nathan the prophet sprung his tra trap? He said, you are the man. Well, she does it a little more subtly, a little bit less boldly, but it's the same thing. Her words, without even mentioning Absalom's name, point the finger at David and accuse him of a moral failure for failing to bring his son back. And, he said, and she says it quite strongly. Verse 13, he's damaging the interests of the people. Verse 14, he is unlike God. But in 18 to 20, David smells a rat. Presumably David knows how keen Absalom, uh, Joab was to get Absalom back. And he begins to suspect that he is being manipulated. And so verse 18, he asks us straight 
and then confronts him, verse 19. Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The game is up. The woman and Joab have been rumbled. Yes, she says, not trying to hide anything. Joab did this to change the situation. This is what it's all been about. Joab was convinced that David was doing the wrong thing about Absalom. He had to turn things around just as Nathan had done previously. The woman played the part of the prophet. Joab was playing the part of God. And David has agreed to that course of action. Well, that's the cunning general and his schemes. Well, we come to the midpoint of the chapter, 21 to 24, and we find whether the plan has worked. To our surprise, after all the scheming and deceiving of 20 verses, there's no recrimination or rebuke on David's part. Verse 21, the king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man, Absalom. Maybe, after all, his fatherly instinct towards reconciliation has been brought out by the woman's story. That phrase, the young man, is a term of affection for a boy normally. And Joab is delighted. He's got the permission he wanted to go and fetch Absalom back, and he wastes no time in doing just that. Look at his reaction, verse 22. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, the Lord my king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Notice he doesn't even pretend that there's anything fishy going on. He just opens up and says thank you. And then verse 23, Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But then, right in the middle of the chapter, just when Joab thinks this is the end of the matter, just when he thinks he's sorted all the problems out, verse 24, David has a change of heart. But the king said... He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house, and he did not see the face of the king. Imagine Joab's disappointment now. After three years in exile, <clears throat> Absalom is finally allowed home to Jerusalem. But David says, he must not see me. There will be no reconciliation after all. Absalom may as well still be banished. And we may well ask, what has been the purpose of this highly complex and carefully crafted chapter so far? What have we learnt? What has the narrator taught us? Isn't the situation in David's kingdom and David's household the same as it was at the beginning of the chapter? David, hostile to Absalom. Absalom, a danger to the kingdom, and nothing resolved. I don't know about you, it has been complicated, hasn't it? It's a strange chapter, it's a strange, complicated narrative, and yet, by the end of it, we have made no progress at all. Nothing has changed. And that is just the point. That is the lesson. See, one of the lessons God is teaching us from this part of the Bible is that the mess caused by human sin is so intractable, it is so complex, it is so spaghetti-like, that it's sometimes beyond us to sort it out. Here are the brains of the kingdom. 
Joab, very, very clever man. David, a very capable leader. And he doesn't know what to do. See, he is the king. He must uphold the law and order in the land. If Absalom needs punishing for killing Amnon, then David should punish him. But David is his father. He is also the father of the murdered son, as well as the father of the daughter of the rape that set it all off. So should Absalom be punished as a murderer or rewarded as an avenger? Should David be reconciled or would that taint David? David doesn't know the answer. Joab thought he knew the answer. And his brilliant scheme made David change his mind, but then he changed his mind again. And so David does not know what to do. And so what he does is, I guess, what many of us do in those hard situations. We put off the decision. We do nothing. We procrastinate. And so David puts Absalom in this kind of holding pattern. And so by the end of this section, nothing has improved. Nothing has moved on. Joab's scheme has failed. The kingdom is still in a mess. It's beyond David to sort out. And that is just the point. But we now need to meet the third player in this drama. The man who will dominate the next four chapters of the book. Here is somebody who does know what to do. Let's meet Absalom in 25 to 33. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut the hair, his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. The daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived for two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, come here so that I can send you to the king and ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom. 
And he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Sandy. <clears throat> well, it's now that we learn that Joab's plan is not only going to fail, it's going to backfire. And having Absalom in the kingdom is going to make matters much worse. The hint of this comes in this unusually detailed and therefore highly significant description of Absalom's physical appearance in verse 25 and 26. Now, I wonder if you can picture Absalom. He is, we are told, in a class of his own. He is magnificent. Verse 25, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Now, in the Hebrew, the word handsome and beautiful are just the same. There's no sort of you know, sexual discrimination uh, in that sense. Handsome is the same word used to describe Absalom's daughter Tamar. Beautiful, verse 27. It's also the same word to describe um, uh, Bathsheba, back in chapter 11, beautiful. So Absalom is a beautiful man with a beautiful family. In fact, the narrator informs us he is perfect, he is without blemish. And just look at all that gorgeously luxuriant hair. <laughs> hair that speaks in the Old Testament, of course, of vitality. In the tradition of the old-time heroes, we are meant to think of Samson, whose strength was linked to his hair. I don't know who you can picture. I was trying to think of some old sort of 1980s rock stars. Uh, maybe you might be thinking of Ross Poldark, emerging from the sea, muscular, vigorous, utterly confident, and a lot of hair. But of course, as soon as we see Absalom's physical beauty, readers of 1 and 2 Samuel should hear alarm bells ringing for three reasons. Firstly, because we may need to think right back to the beginning in what we call the theme tune of the book and Hannah's song, which warned us against trusting the strong man to sort out the problems, the mighty warrior who is so confident in his own strength. And there's no question that Absalom is full of himself. I mean, can I ask you people who have lots of hair, do you weigh your hair? <laughs> do you weigh your hair in what looks like a sort of public ritual of celebration of virality, verse 26? What kind of narcissistic egomaniac does this, we are meant to be saying? And if we're in any doubt about that, just follow the progress through into chapter 15, which we'll mention in a moment. And by chapter 18, Absalom's ego has exploded and he is actually building statues to his own celebrity status, 1818. So Absalom looks very attractive. But in the eyes of the narrator, he does not look like the kind of person God would choose to build his kingdom. It's a very helpful lesson for us, isn't it? Don't be seduced by men with lots of hair. It's a good lesson. <laughs> Maybe we should just leave it there and say that's the, uh, <laughs> the take-home from this sermon. The second reason alarm bells should be ringing is because at various times we've been warned against being seduced by physical appearance and how dangerous that is. 
You may remember how Saul was introduced back in 1 Samuel 9 verse 2, very similar language. We're told there was not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than anyone. So we have this superlative picture of Saul, and now we see it again in Absalom. But so impressive was Saul that you may remember God even had to warn Samuel against being impressed. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Do not look at his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outside, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, the third reason this should be ringing alarm bells is because all of this is soon going to become a huge problem for David. Just imagine, if you can, a situation like this. Here is a prince, estranged from the royal family, living in exile. But he still wants to be treated like a prince. Just skim over to chapter 15, and you can see he can afford the fast cars. 15 verse 1, buys a chariot. 15 verse 4, he takes up the social justice causes that his dad can't be bothered with. 15 verse 6, he has this massive curated following of celebrity status. Maybe he does the odd talk show to spill the beans about how out of touch the royal family is. I can't think who he reminds me of. (laughs) But can you see how dangerous this is for David? Can you imagine how David's refusal to see this ambitious, popular beautiful prince makes David look. Here is someone in the kingdom who looks like a king. And we'll see very soon in the chapters that follow that his followers start calling him a king. Well, these concerns are confirmed in what happens next. We quickly learn in 28 to 32 that just as God warned Samuel, Absalom is beautiful on the outside but ugly on the inside. He gets frustrated at the situation. David is keeping him at arm's length with no explanation. Joab, the only person with access to the king, refuses to return his calls with no explanation. But Absalom is used to getting his way. And so he turns to this kind of mafia bullying tactic to get Joab's attention. There's nothing like setting fire to someone's property to get them to actually answer your questions. And here again is a reminder of Samson. Samson, you may remember, burned the barley fields of his enemies back in the Judges. Absalom sets fire to Joab's barley fields, verse 30. And so just a little hint that we're back in the chaos again. But it works. Verse 31, he gets his attention. He asks to see the king. And without any argument, Joab complies, verse 33. And so it appears that Absalom, after a five-year wait has finally got his way, and the road to reconciliation is set up. But the chapter, and our time in 2 Samuel for now, concludes with another scene of anticlimax and ambiguity, verse 33. So you remember that this meeting between father and son is what the whole chapter has been about. The chapter began in verse 1 with those three players And this ambiguous note of the king's heart. From the moment Joab conceived the plan with the wise woman of Tekoa to David's sudden change of mind to the burning of Joab's barley fields, this is where this whole chapter has been driving, this reconciliation between king and the prince. 
This is the thing that Joab believes will heal the kingdom, will sort the mess. But as Absalom enters the room, we don't know what to expect. David has been hard to read, hasn't he, these last couple of chapters. His actions unpredictable. Are we going to see a meeting between a yearning father and a repentant wayward son? Will it be like the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15, where the father kind of runs to the son and hugs him in this embrace of forgiveness and reconciliation? Or will it be the kingly response, the stern, formal encounter between an uncompromising king and his guilty subject? Well, look with me at verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. The answer when we see it seems to be neither. It's impossible really to read, isn't it? There is a kiss. There is some kind of reconciliation. The king and the son are on speaking terms again. But there's no prodigal embrace. There is a strange kind of stiffness to the meeting, even the formal way the narrative is told. Absalom comes and throws himself on the ground like a servant, just as everyone else in the chapter has done. Except for, do you notice, there's that little phrase missing. He doesn't pay him honor. He bows down in body, but not in heart. And in a chapter where David's name has not once been used, he is still the king. He doesn't look like a father. And so we end on a note of uncertainty. Absalom is home. The exile is over. Joab has been vindicated to a degree. But forgiveness, reconciliation, I think it looks more like a truce. And as you read on, you see that David's troubles regarding Absalom are only just beginning. The best human efforts to save the kingdom, the best human efforts, have come to nothing. The effects of sin continue. The schemes of men have failed. And on that note, we leave the book of Samuel until this time next year. Well, let me conclude then with a return to that question from the front cover of Time magazine. Who will save the world? And what 2 Samuel 14 does, I think, is show us the foolishness of trusting anything other than God's answer to that question. God's answer in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It does it by showing us the emptiness and the ineffectiveness of Human solutions that claim to fix the mess. Solutions which depend on human power and wisdom and beauty. I wonder if you notice the counterfeits in the chapter. See, Joab is a kind of counterfeit God. Puts words in the mouth of the woman who is a kind of counterfeit prophet. Absalom, <clears throat> with that magnificent hairdo, is a counterfeit Samson. And David, meanwhile, is a counterfeit king. He does nothing, makes no decisions, risks nothing, changes nothing. And the point that the narrator, I think, is driving at is that none of them can change the one thing that matters. It's like Paddington 2. 
one of the best films out there. For some time, Paddington Bear is in prison. Prison is a terrible place. The food is awful. People are generally unhappy. But because of his considerable charm and charisma, somehow Paddington changes things, improves the food. He gets people baking cakes and making marmalade and singing and dancing. And there are flowers and fun and music, and it's fantastic. It's utterly transformed. It is far, far better than when he arrives. But it's still a prison. And in the intractable, painful, impossible mess of life in our world, it is tempting to be seduced into thinking that we can change it. That what is strong and what is clever and what is powerful can actually fix the world. And it's so easy to come to think in our compassion and concern that actually it is the church's task to save the world rather than to point people to the one who saves the world. But if we learn anything from the reign of David and the message of 1 and 2 Samuel, is it that only the blood of Jesus Christ, son of David, shed on the cross, can fix the world because only that can bring forgiveness. It's when the message of Jesus Christ crucified is preached and believed, there is the only time that God is building his kingdom because it's a kingdom built on the forgiveness of sins. But we still doubt that this is true. See, compare the effect of the words of Nathan, the prophet, and the words of the woman of Tekoa. In chapter 12, Nathan's words, which were God's words, brought real change, real repentance, real forgiveness. And we saw that being worked out in David's marriage to Bathsheba. A marriage begun in sin, but redeemed by the grace of God. But Joab's words, well-intentioned though they are, just bring further confusion and a kind of half-hearted reconciliation. Human words, human counsel, human wisdom can do some things, but it can't change the one thing that matters. Only the gospel of forgiveness has the power to actually mend broken hearts, heal broken minds, and transform people's lives. Only the word of God brings a kingdom that lasts. And I wonder if sometimes we don't believe this. Well, can I suggest if that's the case, that you look around your church family, because it's actually in here that we see the power of the restoration of the gospel of the cross. So you think about you if you're a Christian and how you have changed over time. We see selfish and egocentric people become humble and servant-hearted. We see sexual immorality and addiction transformed into purity and holiness. We see anger and impatience turned into kindness and gentleness. We see greed turned into generosity. We see despair turned into joy, grief into hope. And when we see these things in ourselves and in others, we are witnessing the most powerful force in the universe, the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus. The power that raised Jesus from the dead 
is at work now through the word of the gospel to restore all things. See, I'm not saying we should not try to improve the world. There are many things we can do to improve the world. But like Paddington 2, it's still a prison. Only Jesus will break us free. Only Jesus brings forgiveness. Only Jesus sorts out the mess of a broken world on the cross. And therefore, it's our task to proclaim it. And it's our great joy to believe it. So let's pray that we might do that now. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge the impossible, unfathomable mess of life caused by sin. We thank you for the ways we've been reminded of that just this week, of our fragility, our vulnerability. And we admit that we are often tempted to trust in counterfeit solutions. We're so easily seduced by the attractive and the powerful and the clever. But we ask instead that we'd be people who trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for our sins and has completely freed us from the dominion of the devil that without the will of our Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from our head. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.